This is the Trip Doctor Podcast. I'm Arizona State University tourism professor Evan Jordan. If you're interested in learning more about being an intelligent traveler, head over to the website at gotripdoctor.com where you can find travel planning resources, a blog about all things travel, and a traveler personality quiz. Destinations like New York and Paris need no introduction. When people hear those names, images like the Statue of Liberty and Eiffel Tower easily come to mind. What about other destinations across the globe that are coming into their own as places to visit? Places like Dubai, Bhutan, and Austin, Texas are becoming increasingly popular travel destinations, all because they're imaginative communities. My guest today is Dr. Robert Govers, author of the recently released book called Imaginative Communities, Admired Cities, Regions, and Countries. He's been doing research on destination image and brand for more than 25 years and has put those years of experience and expertise to good use writing his book about why some destinations captivate travelers and others do not. It's really about the imaginative, i.e. new or innovative or mesmerizing or whatever things that you do um, in a place that will give you name awareness and, and particularly a positive image. So people need to associate places with something. Um, something intriguing and it's something unique, something that they cannot find everywhere. And this is the real challenge. How do you do that? And you do that through doing real initiatives, uh, real infrastructure, real architecture, real um, attractions, if you like, can be anything. And, you know, when, when you think of it that way, of course, New York, Amsterdam, Paris, London, those are all famous places. Why? Because they offer unique experiences. They're unique places. They, you know, they, there's no alternative for going to New York, Amsterdam, Paris or London. I want to ask you uh, about your personal travel experiences because you've traveled a lot. And I think part of it has to do with uh, your location in Europe. I think there's a little bit of a difference between a lot of people in the U.S. who, you know, if we travel for three hours, we're still in the U.S. But if you travel for three hours, you're in a very different place culturally, culturally sometimes geographically. And so that's kind of fascinating to me as somebody who's been based in Europe and, and Belgium and the Netherlands. You know, how do you think that has influenced your travel experiences? I mean, I know you're not just traveling in those places. You you go all over the world for talks and things like that. But uh, do you think that's played a role in, in your travel experience and how that's kind of informed your research? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I haven't traveled excessively in the United States, though, I must say. But um, And I, I guess, um, even though it's still the same country, I suspect that there are quite a bit of uh, cultural differences if you go from one, one state or one region in the U.S. to another. Um, so, you know, I would be eager to get those experiences. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, in Europe, of course... Um, uh, particularly being in in the Netherlands, I'm a Dutchman, so you know the Netherlands is a tiny country. So if you if you drive for for over an hour, then you're in a different country, or either in Belgium or in in Germany. Um, so um, 
yeah, from from an early age, you get to experience those cultural differences. Um, I I actually live in Antwerp now, but I was I vividly remember as a kid with my parents uh, doing a day trip to Antwerp, which is like an hour's drive from where I was, which is the city of The Hague at the time where I was born. Um, and I, I really experienced, even though they speak the same language, it's, um, I, I really experienced the cultural difference and the difference in architecture and the way people do things and, you know, shops and, and everything else. And that, that immediately intrigued me. So, um, and then, of course, um, growing up and traveling through Europe, it's uh, it can be an amazing experience. And, and sometimes we forget. And um, I, re- I vividly uh, remember just about a year ago, we were traveling to Italy and, um, you know, leaving uh, out of Antwerp, uh, like I say, within hours, you're in France. Then you're crossing the border into Switzerland. You're driving straight through the Alps. And then we had um, lunch on Lago di Como, which is the north of Italy. And I said, I said to my wife and kids, "Do you realize that we've just crossed four countries? You know, within half a day, we're now having lunch at the Lago di Como. Uh, beautiful weather, beautiful lake, beautiful setting with the Alps in the background. And we were actually driving onwards um, uh, to Florence, I think it was, within one day. You know, that's just amazing." I mean, you're right. There there are different cultures in the U.S. and certainly even between states and especially between regions in the U.S. It's definitely different, but I feel like the magnitude is not quite as high in terms of the differences um, that we experience between our smaller regions. Right. I wouldn't be able to, to confirm that or deny that. I don't know. <laughs> Good. Then you'll have to take me at my word for it. Yes. No, I will come and see for myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm wondering, do you have a do you have a favorite place that you've ever traveled? It doesn't have to be in Europe. I mean, it, across the globe, you've been a lot of places. Like, what's your number one place that you've ever been? Oh, that's a very tough. One. That's a hard question to answer. Um, you know, there's not one particular place that it's a favorite. Um, I tend to really enjoy cities because of, you know, the cultural offering and the dynamics of cities, uh, even though, of course, I like wildlife and, and nature. But um, uh, I love cities because you have so much adventure in one place um, and then particularly cities that are on the water. And, and coincidentally, in the next couple of months, I'm going to visit again. I've been to these places several times before, but some of my favorite cities, Hong Kong and Istanbul, I love those. Um, because of the, the cultural difference um, um, from Europe. You know, these are, uh, of course, culturally quite diverse and different cities from from uh, major major European cities uh, and the dynamics and the hustle and bustle that you have there. And I, I love that. Um, yet, on the other hand, you have the water. So you've got you've got open space and you've got um, air, if you like, at the same time. Um, so I love those. Uh, I love those cities. Um, Sydney comes to mind. Um, the city where I live, Antwerp, because we've got the river here. So um, I like that. At Rotterdam is now Amsterdam. I love those cities that you have the dynamics of the city and the and the, and, the, and the crowdedness and the cultural diversity and all of that of the city. Yet it, space. Um, and access to water and, and, and clean air, if you like. 
Yeah, there's something really to be said for those cities that are on the water. I, I was just visiting the Azores, and even though the city I was in, Punta Delgada, was not a big city, you still had... The thing that, that struck me, being somebody who lives in the desert right now, is the sea breeze. Like, you have that salt ocean air, and it just kind of feels, I don't know, more alive? Yeah. Maybe? Yeah. It just yeah, brings, so. brings that sense of that even though in today's globalized society, you could hop on a plane and be anywhere, but you look at the ocean and you kind of get that feeling like that could take yes. you wherever you want across the globe. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I love that. Well, so what about places that you have yet to go? Is there any place that's on your list that you're thinking like this is the next place that I want to go? And, and why is it on your list? Lots of the United States, um, absolutely, uh, very high uh, on my bucket list. And actually, I've got teenage kids, um, and you know, we've been to uh, to many places. Um, the last big trip that we did was South Africa a couple of years ago, um, and they've been constantly nagging that they want to go to the West Coast um, and you know the rest of the U.S. So. Um, Definitely, because as as I said, we we haven't seen much of that. Uh, it's very high on our on our list, um, and the rest of the world, <laughs> you know, I, I really can't say, you know, that uh, certain places don't attract me or do attract me more than others. It's it's what I enjoy. I enjoy the act of traveling. Um, so not not necessarily actually spending a lot of time in one place, which which can also be nice, particularly if you if you do it professionally uh, and you're able to that's one of the advantages of being in academia if you like that you are able to go to other places and spend time with colleagues um which is a different experience than just being a tourist of course so i love that spending time real time in a place but also just the act of traveling so moving from place to place uh, uh, preferably on a train or by car so that you can actually see the change in landscape and the change in culture um I love that. So, um, you know, there's so many, so many places that I really still hope to be able to go to. And it's sort of fascinating to me how people choose their destinations across their lifetime, because, you mm. know, you mentioned you have teenage kids and they play an important role now in the places that you decide to go on your family trips. Right. I mean, aside from business travel. Um, and that's something that I'm experiencing right now. I have a one and a half year old and my wife and I are like, all right, where is a good place that we can go with him? You know, that we're now more concerned about safety than we were before. Yes. We're concerned about like the availability of certain types of foods and that sort of thing. And it's just fascinating how that changed. Whereas, you know, five years ago, that didn't cross my mind at all. It was like, I would go anywhere. <laughs> yes. And I imagine in the near future, we're going to be thinking about going places like Disneyland, which would never have been on my list previously, but now it's weirdly attractive. Yes, of course. And, and uh, yeah, so that, that changes um, over your family life cycle, if you like. Um, so, you know, I'm, like I said, I, en I enjoy travel for the act of traveling. So, you know, moving from place to place, from, from, from restaurant to, to, you know, museum, to constantly being on the move, constantly doing new things. So I'm, I'm not a beach going uh, person at all. I, you know, it just seems a waste of time for me to, 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 to travel to another place and then lie on the beach for a week. I don't, it doesn't attract me at all. 
Um, but of course, when, when, when my kids were smaller, um, you know, you have to because you, you, can, you know, when, when they're, when they're very small, when they're, you know, below their, I guess not teenagers yet. So I don't know, five to 10 to 12. Um, you cannot constantly drag them around from museum to museum and, you know, so they, they want to play and they want to be in the beach. And so we did that. But now that they are older, um, they, um, and I guess also that's because of the way we brought them up. They, um, they enjoy traveling themselves and they enjoy seeing other things and trying new things and trying new foods and, and all of that. So that's great. It's absolutely wonderful to be able to do that. So I know in a little bit we're going to talk about your your book, Imaginative Communities, but I just wonder sometimes, does that work that you've done on place branding and communities and what makes a good community, does that ever influence the places that you want to go? Well, I think it it actually, that's why I wrote the book and that's why I've studied that field of place image and place branding. Um uh, is um, because I, I think it influences everybody's uh, wish list. And um, that's why I think it's an important topic. Um, so when we talk about uh, places as brands, uh, the, the whole idea of, of course, is that a place can be, um, a, a place has name recognition and, 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 and conjures up uh, images in people's minds and therefore is a brand. So I think undeniably you can say that places are brands as, the, as though you have um, commercial brands in a similar fashion. Um, where a lot of things go, go wrong, but I don't think we have to discuss that in this podcast. Uh, when you call it place branding, i.e. that you can apply the same principle as though you could apply the same principles that you do, that you apply in the commercial world uh, to places there, a lot of things go wrong when they when people think it's really about logos and slogans and all of that, I think that's nonsense. What it is about is about, is um, how you can influence name awareness and and positive reputation, positive, conjuring up positive images in people's minds. And um, places that have this name awareness, name recognition, and that people recognize for something special, um, those are the places that everybody wants to go to. I'm now, of course, generalizing and exaggerating. Um, but I think it's truly essential in um, in how people determine when they want to travel to. They want to go to the place that they, they they've heard about and that that um, uh, come to mind when they think of certain types of experiences or what these places have to offer. Um, you know, it's not it's not a coincidence that my kids want to go to the west coast of the U.S. Why do you think that is? Because they've constantly seen it on TV and movies and the Internet and, and what have you. Uh, Hollywood, of course, plays a big role in that. So um, these are the types of processes that determine people's uh, preferences and and um, and give them uh, a reason why they want to go to certain places. So I'm just curious how how do you've been doing research on uh, place image, destination image, and a lot of things surrounding that formation for a long time. And I'm just curious, how did you get into that? Like, how did you? I've had people who have said, you know, from a very young age, I wanted to study tourism, and I went through school, and I did that, and that was my goal the whole time. And other people have said, you know, I just sort of stumbled upon it. Um, you know, when something else didn't work out. So I'm interested in your journey to becoming 
one of the world's foremost ex- experts on imaginative communities and, and, and place image, destination image. How did you get there? Um, actually, at, at university. So um, I was in a business school uh, majoring marketing. And I was already interested in, in traveling and, and did a lot of traveling as a student. Um, and, and we had a elective course on tourism marketing. And immediately I was interested in this idea of, of how do places actually create an image in people's minds and why are some places more known than others and why do people want, many people want to go to the same places? Why is it that they have this special connection uh, this special mental connection with these uh, places so that they um, they put it on their bucket list if you like Um, so you know already as a student that is what interested me so I actually did my master thesis on that and um, then was asked to get into the PhD program did my PhD research on that Um, so it was a, a gradual process but it was I think partly because of my interest in travel um and then combining that with what I was studying, which which is what, uh, what marketing, and therefore I've now been looking into this for the last over twenty years, twenty twenty five years. So in the last twenty years, this is you've been studying this area, and you've published a lot of articles, a couple of books, and now you've published a new book called Imaginative Communities. But before we talk about that new book, I'm interested in. Can you just give us a summary of what are what are the big things that you found in the last twenty years of doing research in this area of destination image? Um, uh, well, there's so many things summarizing. I know that's kind of a really um, broad question. <laughs> um, Maybe just pick out a few of your favorites. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things. So, um, as I said earlier, um, you know, I think that the whole idea of brand um, is problematic in the sense that we now see all these destinations trying to promote. Um, I mean, nece- promoting a place is not necessarily a bad idea, but uh, to do it through logos and slogans and 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 mass media advertising campaigns on CNN and stuff like that, I don't think that really works. And the reason is, is that I think the way that people um, build perceptions, a lot of that is actually, and this is, I think, an interesting fact that you will see, uh, is done in childhood, as I just mentioned, my kids, you know, but this is true for many people, what you study in school, what the books that you've read when you were young, the, Im- the, the, the images that you saw on TV and in the movies. Um, so a lot of these perceptions that we have of other places are really formed at an early age. Um, and they're ingrained in our minds. Um, another interesting thing is that these, these uh, perceptions are very hard to influence. So they are very determined. Um, people don't easily let go of their preconceived ideas and the stereotypes very often that they have about other peoples and other places. Um, so if you're talking about place branding, idea, meaning the idea that as a, as a city, as a region, as a country, you can, you can influence these perceptions, um, you need to really know um, what processes work and what, uh, which processes don't. And again, another interesting finding is that we, we found that um, advertising is probably the least effective uh, way of influencing people's uh, perceptions. Um, 
what does influence people's perceptions is, of course, their own travel experiences. So the more traveled you are, to more, the more places you've been to, the richer your understanding of also the places that you have not been to. Um, and then, of course, uh, experiences of peers. And this is another interesting fact that social media has, of course, uh, changed this landscape completely, um, where people now constantly share their travel experiences, their experiences of other cultures, their experiences of new foods on you know, Facebook, Twitter, and what have you. Um, and this has a huge impact on the way we understand the world um, and how we are open to experiencing new things. And it really seems like destinations are struggling mightily to have some sort of influence over how people are portraying their destinations. So one example I'll exactly. give is like Snapchat filters. Destinations are really trying to provide these these things like Snapchat filters or, um, you know, putting up signs that the, this is a great place to take a Instagram photo, that sort of thing, yeah. to curate the the experience that people are sharing on social media. I mean, do you think that sort of thing works? Um, good question. Um, it, it can work to reinforce um, uh, uh, existing processes. What I mean with that is um, a good example I, I think uh, you might have come across is the I Amsterdam campaign and the I Amsterdam letters that they had. They've got these big letters in front of the Rijksmuseum and other places in, in the city of Amsterdam. And yes, of course, people take pictures with that and they share it, so it spreads around quickly. But um, and then people will say, well, look, um, this has made the city famous. And, and this is exactly what I also argue in, in my new book, Imaginative Communities. I don't think these things have uh, make these cities famous. People post, take those pictures and put them on social media and post them on Facebook and buy the T-shirt with the I Amsterdam logo and all of that because they want to show off the fact that they are now in the city of Amsterdam. And why do they want to do that? Because everybody wants, loves Amsterdam and everybody wants to go there. So they can say, look, I'm in Amsterdam. Um, uh, people also say, well, then what about I Heart New York? Is the, is the classic example of a so-called city brand that uh, people will say, well, you see, it works. It, it makes the city famous. And my immediate response to that is, well, so if that have, would have been I Heart Detroit, now Detroit would have been similarly famous as, or I Heart Albuquerque, who um, <laughs> would have worked in a similar way. So it, obviously the answer is no. So I think um, these are not the ways in which um, cities become cities or regions or countries become famous, um, but they can reinforce name awareness and spreading of um, of rumor and and, and interest. Um, and this is exactly the reason why I wrote the book Imaginative Communities to argue that it's really about the imaginative, i.e., new or innovative or mesmerizing or whatever things that you do um, in a place that will give you name awareness and, and particularly a positive image. So people need to associate places with something, um, something intriguing and something unique, something that they cannot find everywhere. And this is the real challenge. How do you do that? And you do that through doing real initiatives, uh, real infrastructure, real architecture, real um, attractions, if you like, can be anything. 
And, you know, when you think of it that way, of course, New York, Amsterdam, Paris, London, those are all famous places. Why? Because they offer unique experiences. They're unique places. They, you know, there's no alternative for going to New York, Amsterdam, Paris or London. Um, so these are places that are on everybody's bucket list because, of course, they're world famous. Everybody's heard of them, but they also conjure up unique images of what they are about. Um that you cannot find anywhere else. So it's really to do with um, identity. Um, do a place um, has to have a unique, and, and of course the population has to have a unique sense of identity, unique sense of belonging, unique sense of purpose. Um, and then based on that identity, based on purpose, do unique initiatives, mesmerizing, intriguing, attractive, or whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, initiatives that uh, people will recognize as coming specifically from there because they can only come from there. Um, and uh, the kind of things that people will uh, immediately recognize and be interested in and therefore share um, in social media and want to visit. So you mentioned some of the reasons for, for writing this book, Imaginative Communities. And I want to sort of transition to talking about the book and in your first chapter, you have a, a quote that says, communities with imagination are beacons of hope in a ruthless, competitive and globalized world in which identities seem lost. And it sounds like the research that you have done previously have sort of led you into creating this book and wanting to now talk about imaginative communities. Mm. So can you tell us, like, wh what is an imaginative community? And is it simply those things that you were just talking about? Is it just that they have unique experiences that you can't get anywhere else? Or are there other things that influence that? Like, are there things that communities can do to become imaginative? And then we can talk a little bit about what that means for, for travelers. Yes. So uh, com communities, uh, to, uh, to give you the definition, obviously we're talking about play, uh, cities, regions, and countries. A community is a people that share... Uh, a culture that share uh, maybe sometimes a government, maybe uh, sometimes uh, a, the state, um, you know, a territory. Um, so I'm I'm talking here about communities from the perspective of of places, if you like, and 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 the belonging that people have to to locations, um, which can also, of course, include diaspora, right? So this is an important. Um, it doesn't necessarily be have to be restricted to the people that actually live there. Um, you know, we, we're, we're living in an age of migration, so it includes diaspora and people that feel connected to these places. So that's the community. And on the other hand, imaginative, um, I use that word because, of course, imagination is about um, uh, understanding what you have um, and then using your imagination in order to add uh, new things onto that. So it's about um, using your identity, using your understanding and your sense of purpose as a community and what we are about, you know, where did we come from? What's our history? What's our uniqueness? Uh, what's our culture? What's our offering? Um, um, you know, where have we come from and where do we want to go as a community and understanding that then creating a sense of purpose on that and then using that and your understanding of what the place is about to create new stuff that will triggers uh, people's imagination and that will 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 signal to people the um, the the unique characteristics and the unique character of a place if you like um 
So I think that's much more important than any type of promotion, advertising, communications that you can do, because that those are real things that people will want to experience and visit and share, um, and therefore will create um, engagement uh, more so than any type of um, advertising or, or promotion could do. So who who's in charge of this? Like, is it different in different communities? Is it like something that tourism organizations are tasked with? Or is it more general in the sense of that everybody needs to be in charge of this? Well, it's the latter, of course. And um, this is, that's a very interesting question, by the way, because what, what you will see is um, in places that are successful in this as a strategy, a lot of this is sometimes coincidental. You know, people could just come up with uh, interesting initiatives and they happen. Um, but if it's, um, if it's longitudinal, if it's, if it's consistent over time, um, places that are successful, successful in this, um, it actually, the whole thing lives its own life. So it's part of what the place is about, what the people are about, and they feel connected to this sense of purpose and they will, um, uh, and they want to be part of it and they want to get engaged with it. Um, so, um, let me give you the example of the city of The Hague. Um, so this is the city of, of peace and justice. I don't know if you've come across it or heard of that. Of course, it's got the war crimes tribunals, the United Nations city of, uh, of peace and justice. But about, about ten, since about 10 years, they've now made it their, um, their strategy. Um, and, and here it's really uh, a municipal government initiative. But it, by now it has become such a um, consistent part of what the city is about, that private sector companies get involved, NGOs get involved, and even residents get involved. So it's it it you know it, in order for it to be successful and for it for in order for it to uh, create a long term um, positioning, if you like, um, it's got to be everybody. It's got to be civil society, private sector, public sector, and of course it has to be uh, also supported by uh, uh, heads of government. Yeah, because it would seem like that's if there needs to be some sort of let's say financial investment or any type of initiative, at least to sort of get the ball rolling. I would imagine that that could come from grassroots, you know, people in the community, organizations in the community. But as soon as there needs to be some sort of financial investment, then it becomes a much more governmental or business issue. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, but even if it's a government uh, issue, it's taxpayers' money, so it's still the residents, isn't it? I think anyway. So you, as a politician, I mean, certainly in democracies, um, as a as a politician, you would have to uh, you you'd be accountable for for spending that money. So um, it's still um, you know it, for 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 the benefit of the people. Yeah, it's the the will of the people, I guess. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the ultimate uh, uh, imaginative community, I think, uh, one of the, for me, the, 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 the biggest examples is the United States of America. So I, I spent a couple of pages. I don't know if you've been able to go through the whole book yet, but I spent a couple of pages on discussing the land of the free. 
for me, that's an imaginative community. And it's, it's, it's everything that the United States is about. Maybe for the last two years, we haven't, we haven't um, recognized this as much as we used to, um, considering the, uh, the current administration. But, um, and, you know, the, the land of opportunity isn't that, that that's, that's government policy. It was invented by, you know, the founding fathers and, and put in the, um, the constitution. And, but it's also, you know, the, what the whole country is about business as well as civil society. For other communities, is there also that kind of ebb and flow where, where they can be more imaginative at some times and less imaginative at other times? I guess so. Yeah, I, I suspect so because, of course, you, you you're always dealing with political cycles. Um, but if it's part of the essence of what a place is about, I think it's not going to go away in a couple of years because there's some some politician or somebody in power. Um, and actually, uh, this is also why the U.S. is a good example. It's not surprising that, of course, if you look at the Nation Brands Index. Um, which is a which is a index uh, a ranking of countries um, in terms of their of how famous they are, you know, how how well aware other people in other countries are about them, and whether they conjure up positive images. And um, since two thousand and nine, the U.S. has always been on top, um, and it and last year it dropped back to um, the seventh position, I think it is. Um, but and before 2009, it was also, I think, in position six or seven or five or whatever. So not number one. And of course, why did it jump up to number one? Is because Obama was elected in 2009, and now it's dropped. Uh, so this is after the Bush administration, and now it's dropped back down. But I'm sure that you know when when the when there's a new administration and a new hope, um, it will go back up because. On the one hand, identity doesn't change from one year to the next. These are things are very stable. And as I said earlier, image also is. People don't really tend to change their minds about other countries and cities and regions very easily. And of course, now, because every, you know, the, the United States is, of course, very dominant in the world. So it's in everybody's face. So we cannot, you know, e even outside the US, we hear constantly about the Trump administration and everything that's going on. So it's so much in our face that we have to uh, all the time think about the U.S., which we don't for most other countries, by the way. Uh, so the U.S. is unique in that sense. And therefore, it has this volatility somewhat of going up and down in the ranking. Um, but at the end of the day, um, now people will say, you know, when you ask them, what do you think of the U.S. and what do you think of the people, of the, what do you think of Americans? And they'll be somewhat negative and they'll be somewhat, you know, hesitant to, to be positive. Um, but as soon as um, there's a change of administration and the, and the rhetoric coming out is more positive and more internationally oriented, I think it will go back up because then people will reckon, ah, you see, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> the Americans have uh, <laughs> found their sense again and uh, uh, business as usual. So what does this mean for, for, for travelers? Like is, is, should people be making a conscious decision to say, I want to travel to imaginative communities or does this just happen naturally? Or are there other things that people can do to, to try and be a part of this? I think it, that, that that's, that's why it's important because it happens naturally because if, you know, stuff coming out of 
so I'll, I'll, maybe it helps for the, um, the, the, the listeners that, you know, haven't seen the book yet and they think, what, what is this guy talking about? One, some examples of, of what I see as imaginative initiatives, you know, things that other places are doing um, that get recognition and that people might recognize. Um, so one classic example is Bhutan, for instance, with their happiness index and, you know, gross, gross national happiness. Um, so, you know, I think it was uh, 20 years ago, roughly, that they came up with um, this idea, not out of nothing, because it's part of what the country is about. They've always prioritized well-being over, you know, economics. Um, so it made complete sense for them to come up with the idea of gross national happiness and coming up with this happiness index and all of that. Um, and this has actually impacted their, their tourism sector from a from a supply perspective, they've said, so we don't want any tourists. We want you know, high spending tourists. We want quality tourism. Um, and they've got these minimal day charge that they, um, that they have in their regulations that you need to spend the minimum amount of money uh, daily in the country. Um, but this is an example of an imaginative community. So this is part of what the country is about. It has therefore, they've come up with interesting initiatives like the index and the, the concept of gross national happiness, which has really given them media attention and the spotlight um, in the world, and therefore people want to go there. But it also actually influences their their actual policies, and in this case, their tourism policy. Another example is uh, that people might recognize maybe is Estonia. They've they've tried to position themselves as a high tech uh, country. Um, so they've come up, they were the first country to write in their constitution that internet access is a human right. They've uh, now have this e-residency program where you can actually become a, a, an online resident of the country. You can start an Estonian business without ever going there. So basically you have a legitimate European business um, all online. So you become an e-resident, you have online access to their banking system, online access to their government services and everything. So those are the kinds of initiatives that I mean. They are new, they are intriguing. People think, hold on, what's going on there, you know? And why they, why them? Um, so that gives them some recognition. And therefore, it gets onto people's wish list because they've heard about it, it they've, they've had some specific associate, they, now have some specific associations with these places and therefore they are much more likely to choose them as destinations does that make sense it, it makes total sense so it, it definitely sounds like something that happens it's not i mean it's intentional sometimes from the community's perspective but in terms of the traveler's perspective these are places that just intrinsically become in interesting because yes. they're doing those cool cool things yeah uh, a, a classic example is Dubai, of course, but I think Dubai has run wild a bit. It's been, gone a bit over the top, but um, I, I've actually lived there for four years between 1999 and 2003, which was at the early days of the rapid development. And this is when they announced the Palm Islands. And at the time, I thought those were wild um, ideas, quite interesting, because, again, it makes... It makes it actually does make sense to build a Palm Island. Let, I'm not talking about the sustainability and the ecological impact of all of that. Of course, those I presume there are issues there, and um, I don't want to, you know, uh, comment on that. But as an initiative of 
you know, um, we want to uh, we want this to be a tourist destination, so we want to create more beachfront property. Why not build an island in the shape of a palm tree? It's crazy, but everybody now knows about it. They've had lots of attention. And it makes sense to have a palm tree-shaped island there. You know, if you would if you would have a palm tree-shaped island in Scandinavia or the Netherlands, or you know, it wouldn't make any sense at all. But to have it in the Arabian Gulf makes a lot of sense because, of course, the the date palm tree is a is a classic icon in the region. As the it's the source of life for um, for Arabs and 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 the former nomads that they were. Um, so, um, you know, it, it, it puts these places on the map and um, therefore uh, people are more likely to want to travel there. Well, that's, that's fantastic. So if people want to learn more about this, they should probably read your book, which is available so. on Amazon. It's available on Kindle. Where else can they find it? Barnes and Noble in the U.S. Um, all, all um, I think all people, all channels that um, even in the bookshop, if you order it, um, I don't think they'll have it on the shelf, but um, you can certainly order it. So it's available everywhere, basically. And they could come to your website, which is imaginativecommunities.com. Fantastic, thank you. And uh, once again, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. This has been uh, really interesting and informative. Thank you very much, Evan. It's uh, lovely to be with you.